Hope you brought your Bibles. Please turn in them to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13 is where we'll be this afternoon as we continue to make our way through this great book. Apologize up front for sniffles or anything. I'm not trying to appear emotional or anything like that. Just had the plague go through our house this week. So living on cold medicine right now. So hopefully nothing crazy comes out. (laughs) We'll pray for that. But Revelation 13 is where we'll be. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word, the way Your Spirit uses the Word to challenge us and confront us, to encourage and equip. We pray as we spend this time together this evening, we would be softened to Your Word, that Your Spirit would work in us so that we might hear what Your Spirit has to say. Lord, help us to be encouraged by even this terrible depiction of what Satan is up to, but how You rule and reign supremely over him and everything that happens in our life. God, you are good, and you do good. Remind us of that as we spend time together. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you have a favorite hymn or a favorite song that you like to sing. If you're anything like me, you probably have many of them. But one of my all-time absolutely favorite songs is This Is My Father's World. This Is My Father's World. Do you know the song? We don't sing it as often as I think we should, Jordan. You need to put that in the rotation more. I love this song. It's such a great song. Every stanza begins with that line. This is my father's world. And it's really an extended meditation on what that means. It talks a lot about the beauty of creation and God's glory in creation. 
and especially how creation essentially sings God's praise. I think every time I go out into nature, I go to the beach or the mountains, or I see a beautiful sunset, this song is the one that always fills my heart. It's always the one that just makes me want to sing God's praises. Now, the reason I bring it up is because that song has been in my head all week as I've studied this passage. Not because there's so much in creation here, about creation here, but because of the third stanza of that song, which is all about God's rule and reign over creation itself. Listen to these lines from This Is My Father's World. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Such profound, simple truth, helpful truth, and it's one we so often forget, isn't it? I think we can go so easily overwhelmed by the evil in this world. As we heard this morning, evil is everywhere. We see it in wars and lawlessness and racism and persecution, oppression of the church. If that's not bad enough, evil is not just a problem out there, is it? Like Chad said this morning, evil comes right out of our hearts. We are desperately wicked. We're part of the problem of the evil in this world. Now, the solution then to the evil in this world isn't to ignore it or to trivialize it, to act like it's really no big deal or it never really affects us as Christians. We need to recognize that evil is strong, not in a sense that in itself, but because who wields the evil, who's causing the evil. We have a very real enemy. But we also need to remember, God is stronger. And God reigns and rules even over Satan and sin and death. And that's what Revelation 13 will remind us of. Just like the song says, though the wrong seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. I hope we can leave here remembering that for the rest of our lives. Really, what we heard last week, if you remember, Jason went through the history of the church, history of the battle between Satan, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. And we learned that Satan himself, that evil dragon, that ancient dragon, is a defeated foe. He's been dealt a death blow in Christ. He's been cast down from heaven. And even though his days are numbered, even though he was allowed to limp along, in his last days, what has he done? He's waging war against the church. That's his only goal. His only intent is to wage war against the church. Look at chapter 12 again, verse 17. This is where that chapter ends. Verse 17 in chapter 12 says this. Then the dragon became furious with the woman. That's symbolizing the people of God. And went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now that is the place where the rest of chapter 13 unfolds because Satan will wage his war on the edge of the sea by drawing out two beasts, one from the sea and one from the land. And so today we're going to deal with the first beast, the beast out of the sea in those first 10 verses that I read. And then next week we'll talk about the second beast. So what I want to talk about with this first beast is three things. First, the identity of the beast. Who is the beast? What is the beast? Then second, the influence, the goal, the intent of the beast. And then third, what should our response 
be to the beast as born-again Christians. So the identity of the beast, the influence of the beast, and then our response to the beast. So let's look at verse 1 one more time as we see the identity of this beast. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, that's symbolizing strength, seven heads with ten diadems on its horns. Those are crowns symbolizing authority and blasphemous names on its heads. Now I hope, if you've been keeping track with us through Revelation, that these words already sound familiar. Hopefully really familiar, because we heard them last week. Look again at chapter 12, verse 3. Chapter 12, verse 3. Listen to this. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Who's that? That's Satan, right? That's the devil. A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Sound familiar? And on his heads were seven diadems or crowns. So this beast in chapter 13 sounds exactly like Satan. Now, it's not that Satan is the beast, but we're told here this is a satanic beast. It's not Satan himself, but it's essentially made in his image. It has all the devil's intentions, all the devil's ambitions, all of his wicked desires. We'll hear the same blasphemous things from the beast as we would hear from the devil. Essentially, you could say that the beast has the heart or the spirit of the devil in him. And that's what's going on here. But notice, though, this beast doesn't come out of the pit of hell, like we heard about Satan a little while ago. This beast comes from where? It comes from, verse 1, the sea. Now that's important because the sea throughout Scripture is the symbol of godless, wicked humanity. It's really the dwelling place of evil and wickedness in our world. Just like the sea itself, right? How chaotic it can be and unstable, restless, and dangerous. That's like the nations, like wicked humanity. That's why it's really good news, by the way, when we get to the end of Revelation. Revelation 21, verse 1, we find out the sea is no more. Because in the new heavens and the new earth, God has wiped away wicked humanity for good. So this beast rises from godless wicked humanity, essentially showing us this is the human agent of Satan to do his work, to do his war against the church. Now that's led a lot of people to believe over the years that, well, of course, this has to be the Antichrist, right? This has to be the Antichrist. You'd be surprised, by the way, how little Actually, there is about the Antichrist in Revelation. There's a lot more in 1 John. And I have no problem with people saying this is the Antichrist in some sense, as long as we can acknowledge, as John says in 1 John chapter 2, that there are many, many Antichrists. Listen to 1 John 2.18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Already have come. That's John's age. Imagine 2,000 years later. So there are many antichrists. We can't limit it to just one man or one nation or one generation. We don't want to make the mistake of the dispensationalists and just push all the antichrist imagery to the future and say there's just one antichrist at the end. Although there probably, since there are many, there is a last antichrist. An ultimate sense, right? We don't want to go the other way, though, and like the preterists and say, no, it's just in the past. It's just Nero. He's the Antichrist, and then there are no other. 
Both of those are wrong, by the way, because the Antichrist includes both of them and everyone in between. See, the idea is that the Antichrist, the beast, torments the church, wages war against the church throughout the church's lifespan, throughout, really, the, whole, the church age. Look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5 again. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And listen, and it was allowed to exercise authority for what? 42 months. If you've been sticking with us, that's the symbolic time period of tribulation, really, that describes the church age, from the resurrection of Jesus to his return. So that's the period of the beast, the Antichrist, battling the church. Now, we also have to be careful as we talk about this beast or this Antichrist not to separate the individual or the ruler from the institution or the state or the nation or government in which they control. John doesn't do that. Look at verse 2. When he starts to describe this beast, he says this, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now I hope you recognize this imagery. If you've been studying the book of Daniel, it'll probably come right to mind really quickly. Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision of four different beasts coming, guess what, out of the sea. Four different beasts. And they are a lion, a bear, and a leopard. And the last beast doesn't get really a name or description. It just devours everything. Now in Daniel, those beasts, those four different beasts, are four different empires. Four different kingdoms. They're Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome, which is really applicable to John's readers, right? That's what those symbolize. But you notice what John does here in Revelation. In Revelation, it's not four different beasts. It's one beast which is combining all four of those ugly creatures, right? The lion, the bear, the leopard. They're all four blended into one satanic and terrifying beast. Well, what's John doing? He's saying, don't you see? It's not, the beast isn't just one single kingdom. It's not one single state. It's any state, any government, any leader or human institution that sets itself against the church, that opposes and persecutes the church throughout the ages. He's saying, yes, Satan was behind Babylon, was behind Persia, was behind Greece and Rome, and Satan will be behind the next one, and the next one, and the next one. Isn't this always the case, too, that as soon as the beast, these beastly nations fall, another one rises in its place? And that's exactly what verse 3 is talking about. Look at verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, which means it should have died, a wound that would kill. But its mortal wound was healed. Now, Christ gave Satan death wounds at the cross, his life, death, and resurrection. And this beast, in a way, resembles that in the sense that it dies off. But what happens over and over and over again? It rises to power again. Sure, you wipe out Nero, you wipe out you know, Hitler and Stalin, and what happens every single time? Another beastly nation raises up. New name, new leaders, same evil intentions. Why? Because Satan's behind all of it. John is warning the church, encouraging the church in some ways, look, 
Don't breathe a sigh of relief when Nero's gone. Don't let down your guard when the beastly nation that oppresses you is done away with. When you experience a time of peace like we seem to have, you can't let down your guard because Satan will rise up another beast. So important for us to hear this, by the way, especially now. I think in some ways we can make the error of John's readers our own error. We can begin to think that, you know what, the state is really our true enemy. You know, you just get Nero, Rome out of the way, the church will be fine. That's what they were thinking in Jesus' day, in John's day. I hear Christians say things all the time, like, you just get Newsom out of office, Biden out of office, right? Get the Democrats out of the way, and then the church, we've won. We'll be fine. We'll grow. And you know what? If that can't happen since the state is our enemy, let's just run. Let's move out of California. Let's homeschool our kids, and then the state can't touch us. We start to believe this. Once we think the state is our true enemy, we start to think that we can run from the state or kill the state off. I think we can also make the error, especially in our day, of thinking the state could be our ally. The state might even be our savior. I hear Christians say things like, we should get involved in politics, because if we were involved in politics, we could do a lot more for the church. And that can be a really good thing until we start to believe, you know what, if we just get the right candidates in office, if we just get the right laws passed, then the church will not be persecuted. The church will grow. The church will help so many people. We can use the state. We can make America great again, and then the church will be great again. We can start to think this way about the state as well. Brothers and sisters, we have to remember what we're hearing in this passage. No matter how peaceful it is right now, no matter how terrible things might get one day, the state is never our true enemy. And the state is never our true savior, ever. Satan is our true enemy. Satan, sin, and death, as we talked about this morning. And he is a defeated foe. Satan might use the state as an instrument of evil rather than an instrument of good, which God intended. Read Romans 13, right? Which we should submit to as, as long as they're doing that, what God's called us to. But Satan has been given a mortal wound with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the worst he can do with the state is kill our bodies. And I know we don't want that, but God will raise us up again. Our enemy has been crushed already by Christ. Yes, he limps along, but his days are numbered. And we will overcome Satan, sin, and death, not with laws, not with the state, but by the blood of the Lamb. By Jesus Christ, our true Savior, who gives us peace with God and forgiveness and righteousness and victory over our greatest enemy. So what is the identity of the beast, in case you didn't get it? It's any human institution or ruler which Satan uses to persecute the church. It's that simple. It's Satan's tool of persecution in this world. So now that we've seen the identity of of the beast. Let's talk about the influence of the beast in verse 3 one more time. What's Satan trying to do with this beast? Well, first, we'll learn that he's trying to lead the world into idolatry. Probably doesn't surprise us, right? It's the way Satan operates. But look at verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And look at how the, the nations respond. And the whole earth 
marveled as they followed the beast. They gave their allegiance to this beast. Verse 4, and they worshipped the dragon. They worshipped Satan. For he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Weren't those words said of Rome? Who can take on Rome? They're everywhere. Weren't those words said even of Hitler? Thousand year Reich, right? Thousand year reign. More like 12. It's kind of comical when you look back on it now. But everybody was terrified saying these types of things. But what we often don't say, these are boastful things, but they're only appropriate when addressed to God. These are idolatrous claims because they're pulled right out of Scripture. Listen to Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Psalm 89, 8. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You see, this is Satan's endgame. To rob God of the glory and the worship that he deserves, even though you can't take anything from God. He wants to get as many people as possible to worship him and worship creation rather than their creator. How about you? But when I look at these descriptions and I think about the beastly nations in our history, part of me thinks, who in their right mind would ever worship the beast? Who would ever give their allegiance to Hitler and Stalin and these terrible leaders? Who in their right mind would ever worship Satan? But see, here's the thing. Satan is a master deceiver. He's a master seducer and blasphemer. And that's his tool to get people to worship him. Look at verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty, and blasphemous words. This is Satan's greatest weapon, by the way. Over and over again, his mouth twisting Scripture, twisting the truth, uttering lies. About who? And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, the church age. It opened its mouth, verse 6, to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name, destroying his reputation, his fame, his glory, and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. That's the church, the dwelling place of God, isn't it? Satan attacks the church, attacks God's reputation. That's the way Satan operates in this world. And what's the result? Verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Oh, this is important for us to remember. Slander is never enough for Satan. Never enough. He goes after us, tries to take the church out. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. This is worldwide worship of the beast here. And all who dwell on the earth, that's the evil earth dwellers, right, will worship it. Do you see what Satan's doing? Seducing, deceiving the world through blasphemous claims about God and about his people? Now, that takes many shapes throughout history. In Daniel's day, like Daniel 7, or in John's day, a lot of that looked like threats. It looked like emperor worship. Right? You bow down to me, or I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. I'm going to throw you in the lion's den. 
You say Caesar is Lord or I'm going to kill you off. That's a blasphemous thing because saying, look, I am essentially greater than your God. I am more powerful than your God. Submit to me or else. It's blasphemy. You know, today it seems, especially in our culture, the beast works far more subtly than that. I'm not aware of any time yet where it's bow down and worship America or you're killed. Maybe bow down, worship China, Russia, you'll be killed. It might get there quick. You've seen how it can turn overnight. But in our age, in our day, a lot of what the beast will say is, give us your allegiance, and I'll give you whatever you want. We'll fix all your problems. We'll fix your economic problems, your social problems, your moral problems, your medical problems. I will give you everything that your God won't. Heard those words before, right? That's the garden. God's holding out on you, and I can give you what you really need. That's the way the beast works. It's this false Messiah, this counterfeit Christ that the beast is portraying. That's what Antichrist means, by the way. Counterfeit Christ. That's all that Satan can do. Did you notice how many parallels there were between the beast and Jesus? In this passage, you'll see more as the chapter goes on, but let me just point out a couple for you. The beast is Satan incarnate. Jesus is God incarnate. In verse 2, Satan gave the beast his power, his throne, his authority, just as Christ was given the power, the throne, and the authority of his father in chapter 4 and 5. Both were slain. Chapter 5 again. Both rise again in some ways, although not the same. Satan seems to rise again, but he's still limping along until Christ finishes him off. And you notice in verse 7, both receive worship from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Worldwide worship of the beast, just like there will be worldwide worship of the Christ. Satan is a master deceiver. He works in counterfeiting God's works, and plenty of people will be fooled. Plenty of people will give their allegiance to the beast. So how do we respond? As Christians, now that we've seen the identity of the beast, the influence of the beast, as John has kind of unmasked or unveiled Satan's work in the beast, what should we do? How should we then live based on this? Well, look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Oh, remember, we've heard this plenty of times from John. This is John's way of saying, listen up, pay attention. Right? These words aren't just for one generation of Christians. This is for all Christians throughout the age. This revelation's for you. You can't miss this. This is very important. Verse 10. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Why doesn't that make you feel warm and fuzzy? Is that encouragement? Does that feel like encouragement to anyone? That's a terrible reality check, isn't it? Essentially what he's saying, look, some of you, say just in this room, will go to prison. Some of you will go to prison. There's nothing you can do about it. Some of you will be killed off by this beast. Some of you will die. And that may still happen. I know we're in a time of peace by God's grace, but again, like I said, the world can turn on Christians in a second. We've seen it over and over and over again. But really, this is not something new. 
John is repeating what Jesus already told his followers, what we've been hearing through Revelation all the way through. John 15, 20 says, a servant is no greater than his master. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, then they will also persecute you. That's the reality of living a Christian life in this world. We will be persecuted. So what are we supposed to do? Look at the end of verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance or the perseverance, you might say, and faith of the saints. You see John's message? Persevere. Keep going. It's amazing how often in Scripture that's the message. The message of the whole book of Hebrews, really, right? And Revelation to this point. Trust the Lord, have faith, and keep going. But you know what's weird about this? John doesn't tell us why. You remember way back in the first few chapters, chapter 2 and 3, all the letters of the church kind of ended like this. But he always told us why. He always told us the outcome of our perseverance. Here, chapter 2, verse 7. You don't have to turn there. Listen to this. To the one who conquers, to the one who perseveres, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's the why. There's how it's going to end. Chapter 2, verse 11. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Chapter 3, verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And on and on and on. John says, persevere, and here's why. Hold on to Jesus, the one who persevered in your place, and this is what you'll get. This is how it'll end. John, where's our why? Where's the fuel for this perseverance? Well, you probably already noticed it. I hope you did. All the way through this passage, did you notice who was in charge of the beast every step of the way? Look at verse 5 again. And the beast was given, facet, a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Well, who gave the beast that mouth? Maybe Satan, maybe. God's generally been the one giving things. Look at the next part of the verse. And it, the beast, was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Who put the beast on that leash? That's God. God said, you can operate in this time. You can persecute the church in this time and no more. Look down at verse 7. It was also, that's the beast again, also allowed by God to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it again by God, over every tribe and people and language and nation. I know Satan likes to act like he's in control of that. Even tried to tempt Jesus with that, right? God is the only one in control of the nations. God is the one giving this authority here. God is in charge of all of it. Every rise and fall of the beast, every deception. God is sovereign over all of it. And how will it end? Look at verse 8. All who dwell on the earth, that's those that follow the beast, will worship it. And listen, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. What does that say? Satan couldn't touch one of God's people. Those that were predestined are those that were saved. And those that were even sanctified through the tribulation that the beast may bring because God preserved them to the end. 
God says, persevere, and I will preserve you. I will seal you. I will measure you. I will keep you to the end. That's been the message of Revelation this whole time, isn't it? You will suffer, but I'm going to keep you. Hold on to Christ, and I'm going to hold on to you. So how should we respond to this beast? Be on the guard. Be on a guard against Satan's deception. Hide God's word in your heart so that you're not deceived by Satan's lie. But persevere in faith. Look to Christ and his finished work. Cling to him in the middle of tribulation. And God will sanctify you. And remember, every step along the way, God is in charge of all of it. Just like that song says, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrongs seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Well, listen to how that stanza ends. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let earth be glad. Let me pray. Father, you are glorious no one can contend with you. You are sovereign and just over your creation. You are so good to your people, even though we don't deserve it. Father, we see your grace time and time again. We see it in your son, in his perfect work, his substitutionary atonement so that we can be at peace with you. We see it in your word as you continue to bless and care for your stubborn and stiff-necked people. And you continue to shape us into the image of your son. God, help us to glorify you. Help us to repent. Help us to trust you. And Father, we pray, keep us. Keep us in Christ to the end. Sanctify us by your spirit so that we might glorify you for all of eternity by singing your praises in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.